following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck and Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good morning. My name is Jay Raman, and I'm professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to welcome you to another one of our educational podcasts with this specific podcast being part of our AUA Expert Exchange podcast series, Discussions in Genitourinary Cancers. Today's specific episode is titled Urothelial Carcinoma Advances in Immuno-Oncology, and it's really my pleasure to host two thought leaders in this field, Dr. Andrea Apollo and Dr. Seema Porton. Dr. Apollo is a medical oncologist from Bethesda, Maryland, who specializes in the treatment of patients with bladder cancer, And Dr. Porton is a urologic oncologist and associate professor of urology at UCSF, who specializes also in the treatment of patients with bladder cancer. Um, So first and foremost, Andrea, Seema, thank you so much for joining us. It's really our pleasure and my pleasure to be able to pick your brain over the next 30 to 40 minutes on this topic. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. Uh, Thank you for having me as well. So uh, just some brief learning objectives. I I think what we'll probably start off is to talk a little bit about um, the role of the urologic oncologist, particularly starting with maybe some non-muscle invasive disease. And then we'll transition a little bit more to uh, the pros and cons of sequencing strategies uh, with chemotherapy and immunotherapy as a first line approach for metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Then talk a little bit about prioritizing treatment options in that space, and then certainly talking a little bit more about second-line options in some of the trials um, that, uh, that highlight uh, second-line options and, and, and efficacy um, for metastatic urothelial cancer. So first of all, Seema, I'll start off with you. Um, because, you know, in this whole realm of immuno-oncology, which obviously continues to be a burgeoning field, um, probably the, the easiest way to start is sort of maybe starting with non-muscle invasive disease, and obviously we'll, we'll move beyond to, to sort of the advanced setting. So maybe just give our listeners a sense of where does immuno-oncology and IO therapy fit in the whole spectrum of a patient with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. So somebody uh, obviously who probably we would still continue to see fairly regularly, you know, in the urology clinics. Yeah, so immunotherapy, uh, systemic immunotherapy has changed the landscape in many ways. Uh, Urologists are very familiar with immunotherapy with BCG and the management of patients with intermediate and high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, But the recent approval of pembrolizumab in BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ as a treatment option uh, has has changed the landscape and also has increased... um, the familiarity that urologists need to have with these drugs. 
their indications and their side effects. So primarily I'm, I'm talking about the keynote trial where approximately 100 patients uh, with single arm phase two um, with BCG unresponsive carcinoma in situ were treated with uh, systemic pembrolizumab given at an interval of every three weeks. And um, the trial was a, a positive trial. There was a 40% complete response rate at three months and about half of those patients had a, a long-term durability um, at about 17 months. So about, you know, when you talk to patients about this, about 20-ish percent of patients with a, um, overall response at, at one year. And, and that was um, practice changing in that this was better than what the standard was, which is using BCG again as a third time. Um, the treatment was pretty well tolerated. However, there were adverse events in about 19% of patients and 3% did have um, high-grade AEs. And, and I think I like to use a case in this situation is that the phone call generally comes to the urologist when a patient is having um, problems in the management of someone with non-muscle invasive cancer, right? Even though you may pair with a medical oncology practice or um, a multidisciplinary team in administering these drugs, and also some urology practices are doing this uh, themselves in this disease space, that the, the call when there's an issue um, will come to you and your team. And, and I had a patient who um, was calling in with symptoms of DKA because their adverse event to pembrolizumab was, um, was uh, <clears throat> autoimmune um, type 1 diabetes presentation, and that was fielded by uh, my, my residents. <laughs> and they were able to recognize it as we've incorporated this into our, um, our curriculum and you know, get the patient treated appropriately. So I, I do think that there's a, a role for us to know about um, these treatment options, know the side effects, we have a, a pretty large role in terms of surveillance of these patients because they still need regular cystoscopies to, to look for disease recurrence. And um, in, in this space, I think it's, it is really important to be aware of these treatment side effects as well as um, uh, helping guide the patient through the kind of this disease spectrum. So, Andrea, now I'll sort of pivot over to you in, in you know, we'll, we'll change, maybe focus a little bit and talk about, you know, metastatic or advanced urothelial carcinoma. And so, you know, when I went through training, if somebody had metastatic disease, the, the answer was always platinum-based chemotherapy. And, and that was sure to your mainstay of therapy and mainstay of treatment. And, and maybe it still is, but, but talk to us a little bit about how does sort of IO therapy, um, partner up with this? How do you think about this? How do you integrate these two, you know, obviously different mechanisms of treating um, advanced cancer um, and, and what's some of the data behind it? Thanks, Jay. And, and I wanted to follow up in, in what Simo was saying about the importance of understanding uh, the toxicities of these therapies, because as these agents are tested in the metastatic setting and we see activity, Naturally, we bring them into earlier states of disease, including muscle invasive and non-muscle invasive. Um, so we are um, very actively testing combinations right now in the metastatic setting. And if these are active, you're going to see it earlier and earlier in states of disease in bladder cancer and have to 
really be able to recognize the toxicity of these combinations. Um, but going back to originally, uh, Jay, what you said, uh, um, platinum is still the backbone for the treatment of patients with metastatic bladder cancer. And there has been a lot of effort in trying to improve upon that. Uh, I wanted to mention a few trials. There have been several large phase three trials asking the question, well, what if we give the checkpoint inhibitor by itself? Well, what if we give it in combination with the chemotherapy? And we're talking about platinum-based chemotherapy, and this is gemcitabine and cisplatinum and gemcitabine and carboplatinum. And, and um, I want to mention um, the Invigor 130 study with atezolizumab, the Danube study with Derva and Tremi, the Kino 361 study with Pembro, and the Checkmate 901 study with Nibonibi, because I think, I think these uh, studies um, are, are very important um, in the efforts that are ongoing right now, large phase three efforts uh, in patients in the first line treatment with metastatic disease. So, so let me start off with the Invergo 130 study. This was a really large trial. 1,200 patients were randomized into three arms to receive a tezolizumab alone, a tezolizumab plus chemotherapy. And again, the chemotherapy is gemcarbo or gemcis versus placebo and chemotherapy, gemcis or gemcarbo. And, um, and the primary analysis uh, was presented and there was a PFS benefit with a hazard ratio of 0.82 for the atezolizumab plus chemo versus the chemotherapy alone. Uh, and uh, in the interim overall survival data was encouraging but immature. And we're hoping to see the mature data for the Invigor 130 uh, study really soon, hopefully in the next couple of meetings. Um, when they looked at the atezolizumab alone arm versus the chemotherapy, they couldn't formally assess the overall survival, but the patients that were PDL1 high, those patients seemed to do better um, than, than the patients that were PDL1 low with monotherapy atezolizumab. So the FDA held an ODAC meeting. This was uh, April of 2021 last year. Um, asking the question because atezolizumab is currently approved right now for the first line treatment of uh, patients with metastatic bladder cancer that are cisplatinum ineligible and are pdl one high. The question was, should we keep this indication? And the ODAC voted 10 to 1 to keep the indication of atezolizumab right now um, in this study. So that was one study. Um, another, another study that I wanted to mention was the Danube study. Um, and the Danube study was a little bit different in that uh, it was also large, 1,000 patients, uh, three arms. But this one actually um, asked the question of double IO, Dervalimab plus Tremi um, versus Dervalimab by itself versus standard of care chemotherapy, again, GEMSYS and GEMCARBO. And it asked, and, and it had two co-primary endpoints. So the first one was uh, overall survival for patients getting dervalumab by itself versus chemotherapy in PDL1 high patients, um, and the second one um, was dervi plus tremi in all comers uh, versus chemotherapy. And for the first primary endpoint, there was a little bit of a numerical benefit to uh, the patients receiving dervalumab monotherapy, and they were PDL1 high. The overall survival was 14 months versus 12 months, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.89. Um, but again, it, it didn't meet uh, the primary endpoint. Uh, and um, for the second co-primary endpoint, uh, it was um, dervi plus tremi. 
uh, versus chemotherapy for all comers, there was, again, a numerical benefit, 15 months versus 12 months uh, for the key of uh, benefiting um, the Derby plus Tremi arm, but this did not meet uh, the predefined um, uh, uh, benefit. So uh, the study was unfortunately negative. And something that we see in these trials, and we see these over and over again, is that when we look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, um, looking at the immunotherapy arm, either alone or in combination, is that the, chemo, the chemotherapy patients do better initially. So, um, and, and, we, and we know that because of the mechanism of action, these, 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 the, the responses are higher with chemotherapy uh, than they are with immunotherapy, but the duration is shorter. Mm -hmm. So you see patients doing better in the chemotherapy arm. And then at some point it crosses over. And usually this is somewhere between nine to 12 months where the patients, although it was a smaller number of patients that responded to uh, the immunotherapy, um, the response is longer. Um, and I think this was kind of the rationale for the maintenance approach. Um, how about instead of giving it in combination, we give it in sequence. Um, and I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Javelin uh, maintenance trial. Um, but I also wanted to mention just, just a, a couple of more trials. Um, the first one is, uh, the other one is the Keynote 361 study. Um, and this is uh, in, this is a randomized trial um, for uh, a patients uh, in the metastatic setting, the first line treatment, and they got either Pembrolone, uh, Pembrol plus chemo uh, versus chemo. Um, and um, the overall survival for the Pembroke plus chemo arm was a little bit better, numerically better, 17 months versus 14 months um, with a hazard ratio of 0.86, um, but it did not meet the statistical, the predefined statistical benefit for either PFS or OS. And then there's the monotherapy uh, Pembroke arm. Uh, the overall survival was 15 months versus 14 months for the chemotherapy uh, arm. And again, very similar to what I was talking about with the Atizo and the Derva and the Derva plus Tremi, the, the patients receiving the chemotherapy do better, but then uh, cross over at about 12 months. And um, there was an ODAC meeting. So the ODAC meeting that was held for the Atizo, this was in, in April, 2021, uh, whether we keep the first line indication of atezolizumab and PDL one high cisplatinum ineligible, the same ODAC meeting also asked the question, do we keep Pembro in the first line setting. Um, and, and the ODAC members thought that we should. Uh, they voted five to three for keeping uh, pembrolizumab. Um, but uh, the FDA uh, in August of uh, 2021 um, actually changed the indication of pembrolizumab. It is no longer approved for patients that are cisplatinum ineligible PDL1 high. It is currently only approved for patients that can't receive any platinum platinum ineligible patients that cannot receive mm -hmm. carboplatinum um, or uh, that cannot re receive cisplatinum. So that's that's a new indication. And then I just wanted to mention um, two more studies. One is the Checkmate 901, and this is Nevo Ipi versus Standard of Care. And there was a press release this year, um, May of 2022, um, that reported that the study did not meet its primary endpoint of overall survival in patients that were pdl one high. The study is also assessing nebo ipi in patients that are cisplatinum ineligible, and there's also an arm of nebo plus chemo versus standard of care, so we're awaiting this data. And there's also the Nile trial um, that uh, has completed accrual. This is a study of dervalumab plus chemo 
versus, this is a lot of drugs, Dervalumab, Tremolumab, and chemo uh, versus standard of care, and that has completed accrual, and we're awaiting this data. So, so clearly, lots of trials and lots of things in our armamentarium. So, I guess, Seema, my question for you is, how, you know, how do you think about the patient who had locally advanced disease? So, and maybe take me through, you know, maybe it's low volume nodal metastasis, maybe it's higher volume nodal metastasis, and then certainly anyone with true M1 disease. Um, how do you think about the concept of consolidative surgery? Let's just assume they, they get any one of these combination of agents and they have a really good response. Um, where does consolidative surgery fit in? What is your sort of thought process and, and how do you sort of navigate that at UCSF? Like what's the discussion amongst urologists, medical oncologists, and, and obviously other members of the team? Yeah, I think this is um, where the Javelin trial really changed our conversation. Um, <clears throat> primarily after using a platinum-based chemotherapy to start, right? The the other studies and and this whole body of work that's that's accruing and resulting um, um, in new data may even change this discussion further. Um, before this whole explosion in immuno-oncology for for patients with locally advanced or metastatic disease, you know we were folks got chemotherapy, and if they had low volume nodal mets or um, locally advanced disease that had some type of a um, clinical response, the discussion was, how can we consolidate these patients with either radical cystectomy, lymph node dissection, maybe an extended dissection and, and urinary diversion, or um, with radiation, right? And, and we extrapolated from many of our retrospective series. The largest was a multi-institutional series published by Sargar about over 300 patients who got primary um, uh, cisplatin-based chemotherapy, either MVAC or um, gemcitabine cisplatin. And when you looked at the rate of complete pathologic response in the lymph nodes um, and bladder, either or, the it was approximately 15%. The, the rates range in the literature because all we have is these retrospective data from academic institutions that we kind of glom together. Um, and in the past, it, it was sort of reported around 20 to, uh, in some, up to like 38%. The, the real hard part with that is, is that you've already done the operation when then you get your, um, your true pathologic response in your lymph nodes. And we know the folks that have a decent path response, despite what the clinical response um, is at the time of imaging prior to deciding to do the surgery, those are the, the patients who do well. But the ones that still have a, a, a fairly decent nodal burden, they don't do well, and you've already put them through this large operation. And I think that kind of shows the limits of some of our um, metrics that we use as surrogates for overall survival, right? And also how we can assess patients for a clinical response with imaging. Now with, with Javelin or, um, I mean, with the with switch maintenance becoming um, a, a real practice changing um, study, and I'll let Andrea talk about that a, a little more, the question now really is in our multidisciplinary tumor board, for these patients with um, 
locally advanced oligometastatic, primarily those with low volume nodal disease, they now have an option for immunotherapy, which had pretty fantastic results that are durable. And so now how do we choose who should have a consolidative surgery? And um, that's become a much harder conversation. What, what ends up happening is, is we end up looking at who's got um, symptomatic local disease, right? A fairly large tumor burden in the, in the bladder, but a phenomenal response in the nodes, right? Um, those are the ones that we, we tend to, in our tumor board, talk about favoring a, a, a surgical consolidation um, um, versus moving on to um, maintenance immunotherapy. I don't know your thoughts, Andrea. Have how yeah, you know, I, I I think one quick question just for our listeners, Seema. Oh, just maybe before we go to Andrea, um, what just explain to our listeners what does switch maintenance mean, just so they understand. And then Andrea, obviously from from your end, maybe you could. You know, well, I was I was going to mention oh, what, what switch maintenance is because um, I wanted to to it, it's a term that we use a lot, and and I want to make sure that the listeners um, understand. So this this is this is. The, this is based on the Javelin 100 study um, that, again, asked the question about, instead of asking the question about combination, asked the question, question of sequence therapy. So it's sequence therapy. So in the Javelin 100 study, everybody got chemotherapy uh, in the first line setting. This is platinum-based chemotherapy, gemcarbo or gemcis. And if they achieved a complete response, partial response, or stable disease, they were allowed to enroll in the study where half of the patients received avalumab plus best supportive care and versus best supportive care. And the patients that received avalumab did much better. The overall survival was 21 months versus 14 months. And based on this data, this is now the standard of care. So the switch maintenance part is that you are switching, um, you know, from basically from, from one treatment, which is the chemotherapy to the maintenance. Um, and um, not observing these patients. A lot, you know, these patients, the standard of care used to be observation. Um, and at this point, we want, our theory is that we want to continue that response and see if we can um, improve the survival by immediately giving immunotherapy at this point um, after the patient has completed chemotherapy. But this is only if they have responded or, or have had at least minimum stable disease. So the question about whether what to do at this point, do you consolidate with surgery or even radiation, or do you do the switch maintenance? I think for now, we have this perspective data, really. Um, we we uh, The standard of care is to go from chemo to immunotherapy. Um, and it, there's going to be a small portion of patients that are not going to respond to chemotherapy because most patients do respond to chemotherapy. And in those patients, you know, then the question comes up again, do you do surgery? You know, generally those patients don't do well. So you want to give them systemic therapy, but there is always a question about who would benefit from local therapy in this metastatic setting in order to improve outcomes. And we don't have any perspective data yet on that. Yeah, it seems it seems like the 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 easier scenario to sort of rationalize is obviously somebody that's having significant local symptomatology, right? Uh, and 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 at least intuitively, you could say, okay, uh, although this is still a, a higher risk person, if they're having I don't know intractable hematuria or any one of a host of local symptoms uh, such that their quality of life is being dramatically impacted. 
that seems like it may be um, a potential opportunity. But but maybe let me ask you the other scenario, Seema, which is when you have these patients, let's just say that they're on long-term um, systemic therapy. Um, how, and, and let's just assume that they're not a patient who has significant um, intractable bladder symptoms. So they're, they're gonna, bladder's gonna stay in situ. Um, how do you survey the bladder? Um, how do you think about um, recurrences that are not invasive? So what's your algorithm for that? Because I, I think as we have more and more of these patients who do well on, on immunotherapy, the reality is we're gonna, as urologists, inherit a lot more patients where we need to continue surveying their bladder in this setting. So how, how do you sort of do that and, and what are sort of your thought processes? Yeah, I would say that we've definitely seen a bit of a change as patients are living longer with with these amazing, you know, discoveries and changes. And um, we have not instituted like, okay, so you have your metastatic disease, chemotherapy, um, and then your maintenance immunotherapy, and it's been two years and you're doing great. Now we should restart your cystos again if you have your bladder in situ. I'm not sure that that um, that makes sense either. Right now we're going by um, uh, clinical assessment, right? If a patient develops hematuria, well, they come back to see me for a cystoscopy and, and we kind of go down that algorithm that way. And we, we do have a, a handful of patients who eventually um, develop non-muscle invasive recurrences and trying to navigate how to, what to do about that has been um, a evolving discussion. And we do tend to end up using our um, <clears throat> uh, non-muscle invasive paradigms, particularly when, as Andrea and I were talking, there are some patients who are now five, six, seven years out, um, who had metastatic disease, um, chemotherapy followed by maintenance immunotherapy and are still alive doing well. And I've had a few of those have some non-muscle invasive recurrences. I tend to manage that with that algorithm. Um, the other time we end up possibly um, uh, working in uh, surveillance cystoscopy back in the, in the uh, surveillance algorithm is when imaging which at times can show a local recurrence in the bladder. So we'll bring those patients back for cystoscopy and kind of follow our non-muscle invasive algorithm right now. Um, but it does it does end up in, in our multidisciplinary discussions at what we should do and how we continue to try to maximize quality of life and, and minimize morbidity from interventions and trying to match that to what's going on in the overall picture um, uh, has been more and more of a challenge and uh, evolving discussions. And, and just maybe one more just related question to that on that last point you brought up. Um, is there any role of, of when you're looking for urinary recurrences um, using uh, biomarkers, whether it be cytology or any of the other biomarkers in lieu of cystoscopy, or are we far too much in the infancy of all of that to, to apply it into this setting? I, I I do think we're a little bit into the infancy of this to apply it in, in this particular setting. We still rely on our old trusty tools of, of cystoscopy mm -hmm. using kind of clinical 
presentation and in judgment. I do think it it is going to be a very interesting future as um, as there's so much progress in the management of patients with metastatic disease. How this will end up perhaps maybe moving the bar forward with using some of these more non-invasive tests for surveillance. But you're not really looking for it, right? You're not looking for recurrence locally. You're just really surveilling the patient for metastatic disease. So, you know, probably less of a role for the biomarkers at this point, because you're really, like like Seema said, really just managing the patients by symptoms when, mm -hmm. when they come in complaining of symptoms and if they need to be managed locally. Sure. So, Andrea, maybe now take us to the next sort of phase here, which is um, maybe talk to the audience a little bit about second line agents. And, and, you know, we've spoken about chemotherapy with platinum. We've talked about immunotherapy. Obviously, you've mentioned a number of different trials. But but what sort of, you know, I, I, maybe the next frontier, what, what are our sort of second line agents thereafter, uh, maybe mechanisms of action and some of the data on, on how well they work or trials in progress? Yeah, there, there are several new agents um, that uh, are now available for patients with metastatic disease. Um, one of them is ertafitinib, and that's a pan-FGFR3 tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And it was FDA approved in April 2019 for platinum refractory metastatic urethral cancer patients that harbor FGFR3 alteration. And this was based on a single arm phase two trial of about 100 patients showing an overall response rate of 40%. And um, so this was a single arm trial. It was accelerated approval. Currently, there's a randomized phase three trial ongoing uh, asking the question of ertafitinib in the second line setting. So it's ertafitinib versus chemotherapy. This has been Funin or docetaxel. And if they've never received checkpoint inhibitor, then it's um, ertafitinib versus pembrolizumab. So this trial is ongoing. But of course, you know, we like to do combinations. Um, and there was a, um, a report of a trial called the Norse trial. Uh, this was reported at ESMO 2021, uh, where they combined ertafitinib with a checkpoint inhibitor and said, well, this is in patients that harbor FGFR3 alterations. And they said, okay, what is the response? Now, this is a really small study, and it was an interim analysis. They only reported on, on 50 patients out of the 90 patients that were supposed to enroll. Um, and from the 37 patients that were assessed, um, the overall response rate for the patients that received the combination of ertafitinib plus the checkpoint inhibitor, it was 68%, and the patients that just received ertafitinib by itself was 33%. So something is there. I know it was really early, but something is there, you know, potentially to combining um, this uh, agent, this FGFR3-targeted agent, with uh, uh, immunotherapy. So I, uh, I also wanted to mention um, two antibody drug conjugates. The first one uh, is infortimab and dotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate that targets nectin-4. Nectin-4 is highly expressed in metastatic urethral carcinoma, so you don't really need a, a tumor screening for it. And it has the payload, which is MMAE, uh, plus the linker that's called the vindotent. And uh, the MMAE is a microtubule disrupting agent that is 200 times more potent than vinblastin chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, we saw the results um, at ASCO 2021 of a phase three randomized study. This is the EV301 study that randomized patients in the second line setting to receive EV 
versus second line chemotherapy with the primary endpoint of overall survival. And uh, it reported an improvement in overall survival for um, EV. So it was 13 months versus nine months for the patients receiving chemotherapy with a hazard ratio of 0.70. Um, and in that same meeting, we saw the results of EV201, um, which this was a, a, a cohort two study, um, a phase two study, single arm study that reported the, the benefit of uh, infortimab and dotin after receiving a checkpoint inhibitor, but in patients that never got uh, platinum-based chemotherapy because they're cis-platinum ineligible. Um, and the overall response rate in that study was 52% um, with a complete response rate of 20%. So in July, 2021, the FDA approved and fortimab and dotant uh, as full approval for patients um, that are, that are uh, platinum and checkpoint inhibitor refractory, so the third line setting, but also for patients that can't receive platinum, that are cisplatinum ineligible um, and had previously received checkpoint inhibitor. Yeah. Now, I want to mention also, of course, combinations. Um, so we saw the combination of EV plus Pembro first reported um, uh, um, a little while ago, and um, this was for this is the first line setting for patients that are cisplatinum ineligible, and it was a really impressive response rate of 73%. Uh, and this year at ESMO, we saw the results of EV103 cohort K that was reported. And this was a randomized study of EV versus EV plus Pembro, but it wasn't like a comparison per se. It wasn't a statistical comparison of these two. It was these two agents were given in the first line setting. Um, and the primary endpoint was overall response rate. Uh, and again, this is in the first line setting for cisplatinum ineligible the overall response rate for EV by itself was 45% and for EV plus Pembro was 65%. So this was pretty impressive. And the majority of the responses were seen at the first assessment. Now, what were the common side effects? And I think this is important. And what are the common side effects that we see with EV? Um, fatigue, peripheral neuropathy, um, alopecia, rash, um, but there are serious side effects too um, that, that are seen such as uh, pneumonitis, sepsis, and multi-organ failure. So those are things to, you know, you know be cautious of um, with these agents. It's, it's basically a very powerful chemotherapy that does seem to have, um, uh, uh, I don't know if I can call it synergy, but, it, but at least additive effect, maybe synergy with immunotherapy. Um, and then there's another um, antibody drug conjugate that I wanted to mention. Uh, this is saxituzumab gobaltecan, and this is a trope 2 directed antibody drug conjugate. Um, trope 2 is an epithelial surface antigen highly expressed in bladder cancer, and the payload is SN38, um, which is um, a topoisomerase, with the which is more potent than the parent compound, arenotecan. And um, we initially saw the results of trophy U01, uh, uh, at ESMO 2020, where 113 patients um, were treated with saxituzumab gobaltecan and the response rate was 27%. Um, and uh, based on this data, the saxituzumab uh, in April of last year, 2021, received accelerated approval by the FDA in patients post-platinum and post-checkpoint inhibitors, so in the third line setting. And there's an ongoing phase three trial right now, confirmatory phase three trial called TRAPOX-04, um, to assess uh, saxituzumab in this setting. 
Um, and of course, um, we've seen combination trials too uh, at GU ASCO 2022 uh, cohort three of the trophy U01 data was presented and this was uh, saxituzumab plus Pembro um, in patients post-platinum and uh, the overall response rate was 34%. Now this was not the first line setting like we saw mm -hmm. with EV plus Pembro. So people are like, oh, that is really low, but it's a different patient population. Mm -hmm. um, this is um, post-platinum um, and the overall response rate was 34%. And there's a lot of um, other cohorts within this study uh, that are looking at uh, saxituzumab global TCAN. Um, uh, uh, in combination with platinum, uh, you know, followed by velomab maintenance and, and different other iterations. So go, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. So, so maybe I'd say uh, maybe to each of you in the last maybe two minutes, um, I'll start with Seema, maybe take sort of your take home message for the listeners just on, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here today as they walk away from this podcast, maybe, you know, your take home from it. And then Andrea, I'll ask you the same. I think my big take home from this is that systemic immuno-oncology is here to stay. And, and Andrea mentioned this um, uh, before, is as we see these phenomenal results in the metastatic disease space, we will see these therapies move earlier in the spectrum, in particular with EV, the next generation of, of trials are, are in the muscle invasive space prior to cystectomy and kind of within the um, uh, realm of urologist. And we have already seen drugs like pembrolizumab in the BCG unresponsive space in terms of non-muscle invasive disease. So I think um, uh, keeping yourself educated and aware of indications, side effects, and, and just the possibilities for your patients is going to be even more and more important. Andrea, sort of final thoughts? So um, I think one of the big questions that often comes up is sequence and how, how to sequence um, these, all these new therapies. And um, I, you know, the, the sequence right now, the, 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 primary treatment in the first line setting is still platinum-based chemotherapy. Um, if they respond, then, then you go on to velomab maintenance. If they don't respond, you go on to checkpoint inhibitor. Um, and then there's second line agents um, that we talked about, um, you know, uh, and third line agents in fortumab and dotin, ertafitinib and saxituzumab glutecan. But I think this gets really complicated as these agents go earlier mm -hmm. to, you know, to muscle invasive and to non-muscle invasive. If somebody already got Pembro in the non-muscle invasive setting, and then, um, you know, they they then develop muscle invasive disease, um, and you know, they get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, have a radical cystectomy. Now, nivolumab is approved based on PFS data in the adjuvant setting, does it make sense to give it to, if they've already had Pembro, mm -hmm. give nivolumab? And then, well, what if a patient develops metastatic disease, but they've already had neoadjuvant chemo, they've already had adjuvant nivolumab, then you're starting with infortumab and dotin. I think it becomes very complicated. And how long do you wait before you rechallenge these patients? Well, what about a combination? You know, so we still have a lot of questions um, as these agents move on to earlier states of disease as to how to sequence them and what's the best way to maximize the effect of these treatments in, in our patients. 
No, that's super. I, I, I think you both did a phenomenal job in, in sort of synthesizing what I think is a fairly um, overwhelming topic, to be honest, for most urologists to listen to. But, but I think the way you contextualized it was, was makes it a lot easier to sort of understand where it fits into the paradigm and, and also for all of us to recognize that the landscape continues to change in all of this. Um, so first of all, I want to thank you, Andrea, Seema. Thank you both so much for your, your time and your expertise here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun for me. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. And uh, for uh, our listeners, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, for any additional information, please uh, visit us at auanet.org slash university. I both hope you both have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Bye.